I'm Dr. Jamie Grant. I'm a bossy femme bottom, and this is Just Sex, Mapping Your Desire. Today, I'm excited to talk with Emmett Patterson, whom I met years ago when he was interning at the National LGBTQ Task Force. This year, Emmett joined the Desire Mapping faculty in Detroit and also in New Zealand when we presented the workshop at the International Lesbian and Gay Association's World Meeting. I have absolutely loved learning more about Emmett's journey. Welcome, Emmett. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners with three descriptors of your desire and then any other details at all about what you'd like to share, what would you like us to know about you? Sure. So, I mean, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm super jazzed, if I could use that word, to be here. <laughs> and, you know, really the three words, uh, it took, you know, a few months of workshopping them, you know, with, with partners and with, with friends. Um, but the three words that I've really landed on to describe my desire are that I'm a bratty mouthy tease. Um, and, you know, aside from being those three things, I'm a queer trans man living with a chronic illness. I've been living in Washington, D.C. my entire adult life, but I'm originally from uh, southwestern Pennsylvania, right outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I also, you know, kind of tap back into being a rural queer and, you know, that mm-hmm. what that brings up for me, too. Mm-hmm. So I guess I just want to catch up. Sure. You've been... Sh- sharing your sex stories more publicly than ever before in the last year. And I wonder what kind of an impact that's had on your sex and your desire of late. Yeah, I mean, when you first kind of came to me and talked a lot about desire mapping, it really resonated with me in a way that I wasn't expecting. I really thought I was very sexually liberated, right? You know, I was like, I'm, you know, I'm queer. And that to me really captures not just, you know, who I'm attracted to, but how I'm attracted to them, the kinds of sex that I'm having. But then, you know, I started doing desire mapping. I, you know, I read portions of your book and I was like, whoa, I actually don't know a lot about myself. Yeah. And sharing stories actually helped me tap into some of those pieces that I didn't even know about myself you know, it would come out of my mouth and mm-hmm. I would say something and I'm like, whoa, I, I don't think that's ever connected before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sharing my stories has also helped me have, you know, more enjoyable sex and, and really just ask for what I want more clearly, more directly. It's reduced a lot of that internalized shame that I had around certain pieces that I didn't even know was there. Right. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of us, when we're sort of, you know, queer and out on the job, mm-hmm. and out of, we, we think, oh, you know, the, the shame thing. Oh, no, I don't have that. I don't, totally. I don't have any internalized, you know, X, Y, Z. And then, you know, when you really sit down with yourself, yeah. and you start to look at sort of these gaps between what you really want and, mm-hmm. and what you're doing. It's like, well, there's, there's shame in that gap. Yeah. And, I, you know, you, you just mentioned something that I think is so critical for me is that, you know, for so long I, you know, I've been working, you know, at the national level on, you know, queer justice work, but also, you know, HIV work, um, and and now kind of larger public health work. Mm -hmm. And I think that that piece around, oh, we can't talk about our desire, we can't talk about sex in the workplace or in our work, it doesn't make any sense when you're doing (laughs) queer organizing or, you know, you know, work around folks living with HIV because that's what these movements were built on. Mm-hmm. You know, we were we were fucking each other and then we realized, you know, that that actually had power behind it. And mm-hmm. so I think for me, the other piece that Desire Mapping has done has allowed me to just bring those pieces of sexual liberation back into my work 
you know, and, and as the way to fuel, especially some of the public health work I'm doing around the world now, mm -hmm. um, because it has everything to do with sex and desire. And we have everything to do with sex and desire, right. too. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the tragedies for me in working like 40 years in LGBT mm -hmm. and women's movement organizations is that like in the 80s doing this work, it was thought of like bringing all that personal stuff in and talking about our sex and having it like in a staff meeting, you mm -hmm. know, was common. <laughs> Yeah. Right? Because we understood that our bodies were under attack, our ways of being were under attack, and we understood the power of putting it in the room, right? Absolutely. And and over the years, the narrative that has taken over is that those those organizations were quote unquote immature, mm. quote unquote not professional, wow. quote unquote, you know, not you know, not really where we want to be. Mm -hmm. And now you go into these organizations and you know, there's a sterility, you know, Absolutely. there's a corporate sort of overlay. And also like you can work in these organizations and not really know anything about anybody's sexual orientation mm -hmm. or their sexuality or what matters to them or how Absolutely. they, those things are now seen as private, quote unquote, mm -hmm. right? You know, the fight for getting the government off our backs and off our asses, mm -hmm. you know, uh, has sort of like had this conservatizing effect that again, I just, I find tragic, but I also beyond sort of tragic, I find that it has taken the power out of our movements around what it means to be visible in our sexualities, to share those stories, to know about each other yeah. and dislodge that shame, mm -hmm. right? And claim ourselves. Yeah. And you know, I'm really coming to this as a person, you know, who grew up towards the end of, you know, that first wave of the U.S. HIV epidemic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've only really understood that from, you know, talking to queer elders, right? And from taking and reading, you know, queer history classes and reading queer history books. Like, you know, I didn't know what sexual liberation looked like pre-Stonewall, right? I didn't know what it looked like after Stonewall. You know, all I had was, you know, post-1981. Right. Really when we consider... When, you know, at a community level, we consider that the HIV epidemic really, you know, catalyzed in the States. So right. I think that 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 fear and shame is also rooted in HIV stigma. And so, you know, Absolutely. for when I think about my desire mapping, being a person who is, you know, really coming into my sexuality in the prep era and in the, you know, the undetectable equals untransmittable U equals U era, it's it's so relevant to bring to bring all of all of ourselves back into the conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're just reminding me that way back in the day, I remember in the midst of the AIDS movement, while we were like planning actions and thinking about mm -hmm. all these really like uh, up to the minute life or death kind of what are we going to yeah. do next? We'd have this incredible joy in the mm -hmm. meetings mm -hmm. around our sex and our sexuality. I remember we, that you know people would like pump their fists like they were you know like yes on a a thing we were going to do and then twirl like you like you were fisting someone right <laughs> like move. like they make the, they make the, the, that oh movement. man i'm doing that with emmett right now you can't see it but you know i mean there was so much humor and yeah. so much defiance in the ways we were saving each other's Absolutely. lives right so I wonder if you'd be willing or interested in telling us just a recent sex story or what's like been on your mind or in your path since you've been doing the workshop or anything at all that comes to mind. Yeah. You know, this is a story that, you know, it was the first story I told really through Desire Mapping. And mm -hmm. I think it's one that 
it's one that's really been sitting with me for a long time. And even though I've told it a few different times in, in front of an audience of people, really, right. I think it still resonates for me. Like, it still feels like every time I tell it, it you know, I uncover or unveil something new. And so I want to talk about the way that grief and trauma intersect with my sex life. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, you know, I've been doing at the national and now the international level some public health work and that really for most of my adult life has meant consistent travel. In the last few years I've traveled to almost every U.S. state and met a lot of queers in a lot of unlikely places and the the best part of me for traveling was travel dick and really just getting to connect with queer people all over and I really attribute that to a lot of the ways that I've been better able to understand how smaller movements of people in very particular areas really are working to do liberation work or HIV prevention and treatment work or just really radical health work. But it's also really allowed me to just expand, you know, (laughs) I don't want to say like repertoire of people, but like really has allowed me to expand like who I've been attracted to and it's really helped me reshape my desire Mm. so there was a few years ago in October I was really coming up on on a death anniversary of my first partner um, who was the first trans person I ever met Mm -hmm. also a queer trans guy Mm -hmm. and we had met before I ever was coming out as trans you know I was still being read you know as a cis woman and you know, growing up in a in a rural community outside of Pittsburgh, and I was coming out in 2010, and there was just no national conversation about trans people. Um, there were no trans adults in my life that I knew of. There was no one in our community. There was really, it was just like mum's the word, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my partner, this was the first person I met who was open and out, and we instantly connected about four months into we didn't you know define whatever it was we were doing you know I started opening up you know I said I think you know your story really resonates with me I think I'm feeling the same way and he was the first person who really you know saw me said my name for the first time Mm -hmm. as it is now and then you know he died very suddenly and he died because he couldn't get health care treatment you know he didn't have insurance doctors wouldn't see him and he died of cancer and it was very horrific and I didn't know he hadn't shared it he was very isolated from his family Mm -hmm. and it was really really hard as a 15 year old to go through that wow and when he died I closed that part of myself off I said if this is how it's going to end how can I how can I go for that and I didn't even think about anything related to my identity for at least another year Mm -hmm. and then I came out to my community and so I you know I really tell that story to to situate you know not just my own identity construction of my identity in, in grief but really you know this was somebody I was really attracted to and I really connected with and we had a really quick intimate relationship and then they were gone mm-hmm. and I wasn't ready to understand what does it mean when someone you connect with like that is all of a sudden not there and so you know he died in in October and then fast forward I think four years yeah and I'm traveling for work. I'm, you know, I've graduated from college. I'm doing 
HIV organizing around the states, and I go to one of our very famous coastal U.S. cities. I won't say which one, okay. um, just to protect some anonymity here, but one that really you know has a strong history of HIV organizing. You know, I was at the end of a long work week, and I was in a hotel. I wasn't at home, and I was just feeling you know very much in my grief. And so I do the thing where I, I get on the apps and, you know, I'm not saying all of our coping mechanisms are the best <laughs> at times, but, you know, really, you know, sex for me was a way for me to cope with some of those really intrusive thoughts that came up when I was feeling just wrecked with grief. And I'm getting on the apps and I'm scrolling and I'm scrolling and all of a sudden I see just the cutest face I've ever seen. And I click, I, you know, I click on his profile and he's just got like this big smile and he looks like me, but doesn't look like me at all. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, for trans folks who, who kind of understand this, like we all have a look, you know, there's just kind of like a sense of like, oh, you're family, like you're right. with me. And we, there's just trans cute is what I call it. And um, <laughs> is that we just, we just do it in a way that like cis people don't. And so, um, and I was like, oh, and there was nothing listed on his profile that said he was trans, but he was like five, four. So I took my chances. I was like, I think, I think this is it. And so I, I hit him up. I said, hey, like, what are you up to? And within, you know, 10 messages, we were like, let's meet up. So I, I go downstairs, there's a bar right outside of the hotel and I'm waiting in the window and I'm, you know, I'm really nervous because he's very, very cute. And he walks in and he is 5'4 and he has tattoos just all up his arms and he has a motorcycle helmet under his arm. And I'm like, done. We are good to go. <laughs> like, there was just no question what I really wanted in the next moment. And he starts talking to me and he's saying probably really, really intelligent things. And I'm just like, wah, 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 yeah. like Charlie Brown adult. <laughs> He, he shared that he, you know, he himself, you know, has been doing HIV work for, for decades, uh, really since the early years of the U.S. epidemic. And, you know, that just really made me just want him even more. Like, it's like you, you understand, you know, what mm-hmm. loss can look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I wasn't thinking that necessarily in that moment, but, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. So... He looks at me eventually and just says, do you want to get out of here? And I said, oh, yeah, like... That's absolutely happening. And he said, I know a place. And so he, we get on, on his motorcycle and oh we... Ha- I know, right? Like, first of all, I'm thinking about my mom in this moment and what <laughs> she's going to say. But I wore a helmet, so it's all good. You know? And we, we drive to a bathhouse. And I, I, I paused and I was really nervous. And, you know, we talked about it. And he said, I've been here before they're cool with us. And so it was a night of firsts, right? So he took my hand and we, we went into the bathhouse, you know, we got our locker key and we go behind the counter and, and head in. And it's just, a, you know, a dark hallway and there are these neon blue lights above. And we're just really, it feels like we're running through the hallway, like at like warp speed. And, you know, we're passing like a gym with all these men piled on top of each other. And, you know, a sauna full of, daddy's wrapped in towels like cooking and and it's <laughs> it's just such a surreal space and there's just the noise and the smell is just unbelievable <laughs> it's like just moaning and just like sweat and sex and it's really really incredible and I'm feeling pretty overwhelmed but we get to our own room and, and in the room there's like a, a cot you know like those nurses room cots that are yes. like leather and you can like wipe them off and yes. so I'm like oh this is 
interesting. But we get in there and he sits on the cot and he's like, come over here. And it's just like, immediately I'm in his arms and you know, we're flipping and I don't know who's on top of who at this point. And we've left the door open and all of a sudden, all of these older cis men start coming over and they're jerking off and they start joining. And it's just very intense. In those moments, I was just thinking, this is the first time since my partner died that I was, you know, fucking somebody whose body was like mine. Mm. And I, you know, I've talked to, you know, partners of color that I've had, positive partners, other disabled partners that I've had who have said, there's just nothing like fucking somebody who feels like you, who knows you know, a little bit of, of those things that you hold in, in your body, right? Mm-hmm. We all hold those, mm-hmm. those traumas and those histories in our body. And it really is true for me that, you know, the sex that I, I had with, with this person in a bathhouse, it's just unlike any other that I had. And eventually some of the other guys leave and, and we're just, we're cuddling on this cot and it just got to be over, too overwhelming and I broke down and I'm, I'm crying and he doesn't say anything. He just holds me closer. Mm. And it just felt like, just like full circle. Like I felt like my partner was there. Yeah. And I felt like completely seen and, and, and heard in that moment. And I, I looked up at him and I said, I think I want to close the door now. Mm. And that's it. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I need a minute. Yeah. <laughs> We breathe a lot when we do the mapping Um, workshop. Gosh, yeah. (laughs) So we're just going to breathe for a minute. I mean, there's just so many gifts in your story. I just really want to thank you for it so much. Thank you for saying that. One of them for sure is this you know, what it means to be able to grieve in our sex, yeah, right? The power of it, the, the need we have for it. And, you know, and then who we get to be when we've, you know, when we've integrated, right? When we've yeah. been able to release more of it, when we've been able to share, you know, and totally. feel like we're in a community of it. I think so little has been done really with the kinds of survivor grief that we're living with in oh the community. Oh my God, yeah. Lived in D.C. for 30 years mm-hmm. through, you know, the AIDS epidemic, I would say the crack epidemic, the gentrification epidemic. Yep. And, you know, I've easily lost 50 people and Absolutely. I've lost people to murder and, you know, so many people to early death around addictions and stuff. And mm-hmm. how these things, I mean, as trans people navigating so much violence mm-hmm. and so much uh, administrative violence, you know, the kind sure. of violence that killed your friend. Yes. No access to the basics. Yeah. I mean, there's just something incredibly beautiful about being able to settle, mm-hmm. <laughs> to connect, and and release together, yeah. right? Um, how do you think, you know, that experience has carried over into what you're able to have with your partner mm-hmm. and with others now? Yeah, that's that's a really great question, and it's it's one that. I don't think I'll ever have a completely right. comfortable Care or answer. right answer to. Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking, you know, so I have a core partner and, and we're in an open relationship. And that means that for both of us, like we're able to really connect with people 
you know, across difference, but also across similarities, right? You know, my partner and I don't share a lot of, you know, identities or the experiences tied to those identities. But what we do is that we're able to see the intersections of of the types of, of trauma and the types of histories that we bring just around, you know, for them being a person of color, particularly being a Latinx person of color under the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. And for me being, you know, a chronically ill, you know, trans person under this administration, there's just so many fears that both of us have and especially around our sex life and our bodies and our sexual health and so you know I think for both of us there there even though it's reaching across difference it's just such a similar story but in terms of you know coming to a better understanding of my grief and being able to not run from my grief but like to run through it and process it and like bring it into my sex life I think it really has opened me up to addressing some of the other things that I've grieved in my life and that the people that I fuck and the people that I connect with grieve in their lives. You know, I think really one of the things that held me back from, you know, partnering or fucking other trans guys for so long was a lot of internalized transphobia too. I don't want to say it was all rooted in this grief. Mm -hmm. It was internalized transphobia that I wasn't addressing, right? I'm a very cis-passing person. Mm -hmm. I often can wait and tell people that I'm trans and I'm not read as trans and so I think for me I was really just living it up with cis privilege Mm -hmm. (laughs) even though you know I'm not cis and it impacted who I was fucking I was fucking a lot of able-bodied like masculine Mm -hmm. cis men Mm -hmm. and that made me feel validated in my in my in my queerness And then at a point, you know, I started addressing it in the ways that I have been building a practice to address things like my internalized white supremacy Mm -hmm. and my internalized ableism, right? Mm -hmm. I wasn't doing that level of daily work work (laughs) with transphobia. Um, And so I think that by acknowledging that, yes, the grief is there and it does kind of impact who I was attracted to or, you know, was willing to let myself be attracted to, it also was holding me back from addressing a bigger root problem of, I was, you know, really afraid of not being, you know, normative in a way. And now I just couldn't give a shit about being <laughs> normative, if, if you can tell at all. But um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, it took, a, it's still taking a lot of work to address the internalized transphobia of it. Yeah, I think grief was a way for me to just prevent myself from looking at root problems too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things we talk about in the workshop is that if you go there with your stuff, right, and you actually then can be present Mm -hmm. in your sex and ask for the things that we want and really have our desire met, Mm -hmm. then it changes where we are out in the world. Yeah. And the kind of power that we can bring, the kind of vision that we can bring. Can you, have you experienced that at all? Or I mean, is, is there something going on that you can sort of see a connection between between those things yeah i think so i love the phrase you know go there um i think i heard (laughs) i heard tom hanks say it at a book reading (laughs) and 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 i was like tom hanks i have a very big thing for tom (laughs) hanks so tom if you're listening just listen closely um but yeah you know i think for me the idea of going there is just so exciting and it used to be absolutely terrifying for me I think that, you know, by starting to really own my queerness and like to redefine my queerness in a way that includes how I fuck and how I, and how I, you know, connect with other people. I think what it did for me is that it it just broadened 
the scope of of who uh, who could be in my life, right? I think of like the idea of you know bringing in bringing in your team and and. For me, what it did is it really did, again, allow me to address those pieces around internalized transphobia, but also femphobia, mm. um, and, you know, really allowing me to assess, you know, is my queerness this thing that I've been told it is, or is it something completely different? And for me, you know, to be a queer person, particularly working, you know, in spaces with other queer people, like, what it means is, like, really owning those parts of me, um, you know... I'm, you know, obviously with, you know, there are workplace boundaries that we do, you know, hold dear. Right. And there are other times when, you know, we really do have to talk about our own, you know, desires and, and how we how we view the world. And so for me, you know, kind of going through the process of digging out that I'm a person who really loves, you know, you know, exhibitionism and uh, who likes kinky sex and, and somebody who likes fucking, you know, people of so many different genders. You know, I, I think about another story that I that I tell during Desire Mapping about all of the femme tops who have ruined my life. And, <laughs> you know, really just leaning in to understanding that, like, my desire is not a physical one, right? It's one that's about but what's in your brain, right? Yes. And, you know, if somebody says something, you know, super smart, it's that's pretty much my, my oh. Yep. We're gonna. We're gonna. Okay, do it. cool. <laughs> it's not always a motorcycle helmet and heavily tattooed, but honestly, it really is. Like, if you can own your own stuff in this world, and if you are just unapologetically yourself, like that is so hot to me. And I really hope we can make something happen because this would be great. And from the larger perspective, in my in my daily work, um, you know, work someone working to have queer people access the healthcare they need and, mm-hmm. and, and own their sexual health and have good information. And, you know, for me, what that means is, is sharing, you know, how I got there. You know, I didn't start to even understand what it meant to be a person who was chronically ill without talking to other chronically ill queers. And mm-hmm. it's, it wasn't just talking to any old person who, you know, also had Crohn's disease. It was like, I want to talk to queer people who have Crohn's disease because it's, it's a very particular understanding of your body. And I think the same can be said for, you know, the trans folks that I'm working alongside of in this movement who, you know, I, I, I have the honor of teaching, a, a facilitating a trans masculine sex ed workshop. Mm. And it's just wild, you know, when, when we see someone who looks like us facilitating or, or owning like information or a history, like it's just completely wild. And, and part of that has to really do with us understanding our own desire to be able to share that with other people so that they can then understand their own desire, right? Mm-hmm. They're not taking ours. Right. You know, not everyone is going after fem tops, right? Like, <laughs> we all probably should be, but like, <laughs> but really, you know, for people to be like unapologetically like, this is this is how I want my life to look. It's not just about sex, but it's like how are we constructing the lives in our communities around us? Mm-hmm. That's what desire, you know, at a large scale is for me. Who gets the pleasure of our company and who do we give the pleasure of our company? I think that's a beautiful place to wrap. Thank you so much, Emmett. It was just absolutely wonderful having you here. Thank you. And now it's time for definition of the day. One of the first things we ask mappers to do in the workshop is to put our names and three words that describe our desire on our name tags. 
and that's how we introduce ourselves to each other. The exercise is meant to decenter the usual ways that we meet each other in various cultures, often prioritizing work and marital or relationship status, and instead think about what our lives might be like if we centered pleasure and desire in our greetings as we met. The tagging exercise has become an incredible teaching tool across cultures and language, where we discover favorite terms in different localities and geographies and teach each other our specific languages of pleasure and yearning. This radically different way of naming ourselves has helped us see that we're defining our desire and our pleasure story with each and every step on our mapping journey, putting up new points on our map every day or week or year, all of this precious information to consider, sift, and align with our stated identities and public presentations of ourselves. So for today's definition of the day segment, I want to offer three terms that people have used during the name tag exercise, all from the W's. First definition, water sporty. Descriptor of a person of any gender or sexual orientation whose gratification hinges on urinating or being urinated on to the delight of their consenting partners. Water sporty. Second word of the day, whore slash whorish. Descriptor of a person of any gender or sexual orientation who embraces their pursuit of multiple partners and may or may not engage in sex for pay or other remuneration. Sacred whores embody a history of drawing on sexual power to ease pain, conflict, and societal struggle. Whore, whorish, sacred whores. Third W word of the day, witch. Descriptor of a person of any gender or sexual orientation whose desires may reference a Wiccan or pagan spiritual underpinning or practice. Witches often shape sexual experiences through careful intention and attention, sometimes referred to as magic. Hey, we're going to take a little break from the show to let you know about my fantastic sponsors. First, Grinder for Equality, a global human rights program leveraging the power of our social and sexual connections for LGBTQ liberation rights and safety around the world. Also, I'd like to thank Elizabeth Scott, a longtime Desire Mapping fan who took the workshop over 10 years ago, a feminist philanthropist based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And finally, the Freeman Foundation, also one of my long-term supporters, a foundation that centers the power of the erotic in LGBTQ liberation work. Thanks, everyone. Now it's time for Question of the Day. In this segment of the pod, we pose a question that is one of the core questions during the Desire Mapping Workshop. Today, I'll give you one of my favorites. What have I always wanted to do sexually, but have held myself back? Why? What stands out as a big missed opportunity for me to explore my desire? So here it is again. What have I always wanted to do sexually, but have held myself back? Why? What stands out as a big missed opportunity for me to explore my desire? I hope this question is helpful to you on your journey, and I'd love to hear from you. Just email us at justsexpod at gmail.com.
Hey, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please head over to iTunes and give us a zillion stars. Send a link to your friends. Talk us up. If you'd like to respond to the show or stay connected, find us on social media under Just Sex Podcast and Desire Mapping. And if you have questions for me about your desire map or comments, you can email me at justsexpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I love to dream of fame. Maybe I'll shine. I'd like to see your name right beside mine. I can see we're in harmony. Looks like we both agree on what to do. And I like it how I